I spent 26 months in Vietnam. And I can tell you right goddamn now, privates, if you don't pay attention to what's happening here in recruit training and learn, you're going to come back from Vietnam in a goddamn plastic body bag. Right now, the casualty rate for young Marines is over 50%. If you don't pay attention, you are going to be that private in the body bag. September 1st, 1967. We can't seem to do anything right. In fact, half of us don't even know our right from our left. Sergeant Loyce says if Uncle Sam is counting on our platoon to win the war for him, he's betting on the wrong side. have set some kind of a new record today. You have fucked over these weapons so goddamn bad, they'll probably never fire again. Uncle Sam, I'm in Vietnam. It's a jungle, it's a prison. But here I am, dreaming of the outside. And freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. I'm your host, James Kent, and with me, as always, is Teal. Teal, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm very excited about today's episode. Oh, well, <laughs> every episode you should be excited about. Well, this one in particular, this is a special one for me. So, well, you know, audience, you're, you don't even know, audience, how special <laughs> it's going to be. You know, so a few episodes ago, we were talking about Brian De Palma, and we did a deep dive, and it took a few episodes to cover most of his films. And I, I'm still, I'm threatening. We still probably have another De Palma episode to do. We yeah. do because again, after I was so obsessed that I went and watched several more after we taped the episodes, <laughs> and then I realized that we gave short shrift to uh, Blowout, which you know, right? Like most De Palma movies, when you watch it once, you get a reaction, but then you go back to it again. And you can enjoy it differently. And that's how I experienced okay. Lola. But we spent some time talking about Body Double, um, which wasn't is, is like a lot of De Palma films. It wasn't a big hit at the beginning. Uh, then it caught on in video. And I think probably a lot of boys our age were uh, <laughs> trying to, for one reason or another, <laughs> we were trying to get our hands on our copy of that. Well, the it. cover of the, the poster was definitely enticing, I got to say. Yes. <laughs> and then, you know, everybody, you know, if you were a big Fangoria fan, as, a, as I was, you know, oh, there's this uh, crazy uh, big drill scene or something. Right. Like, oh, yes. The drill. Yeah, everyone was talking about. You know, yeah. so there was reasons to watch it, but uh, one of the things that was a good takeaway, uh, a big takeaway, was that there was a the central performance by uh, actor Craig Wasson had caught our attention, and we were talking about it. And uh, so, long story short, we have a friend uh, of the show and a friend in real life. His name is Al. He's he's been a guest on the show. Yeah. Yeah, well, he's talking about the Cambria Film Festival, which is in Northern California. And uh, normally, I guess it would happen very close to around now, like maybe February. I don't know what happened last year. I think they may have had to do a virtual one. Maybe they had it in person because just as things with the pandemic were starting to come into play. Right. But And they may be doing it virtually this year. But uh, long story short, I'm going to make this long story very, very short. <laughs> Through Al... Somehow, some crazy way, he got us in touch with our special guest today. Uh, He's with us here virtually, and you may know his work uh, from Body Double. 
uh, films like Ghost Story, Boys and Company C, Go Tell the Spartans, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, which I watched again over the me weekend. Too. Haven't me seen too. it in many years, and it was kind of, it brought me right back to my teenage years. But we have with us Mr. Craig Wasson. Hey, you guys. Welcome. I really appreciate being with you, James and Teal. Appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah, it's really uh, wonderful to have you here. It's a, it's a great honor. I know it's amazing. <laughs> the honor is amazing. mine. I think the honor is mine, guys. <laughs> uh, now you you're too kind. Now, Craig. Uh, so th- this will be a whole, I think, episode of correct me if I'm wrong, kind of thing. <laughs> okay, okay. Because <laughs> uh, I mean, you, know, you get details, and and I do research, but th- this is where you get to say no, you're wrong. Okay. So, if I'm correct, you 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 grew up. You started life up in uh, Ontario, Oregon. Is that correct? I was born in Ontario, Oregon, but my folks lived in Payette, Idaho, across the oh. state lines. Well, yeah, because it's right it's right across the state lines, right? Right. The Snake River divides it there. So you grew up in Idaho then. Yep, grew up in Idaho, and uh, then my folks, my dad was transferred to Eugene, Oregon in uh, 1969, no, 67, 1967, okay. and so then I, you know, had my junior high, high school years in uh, in Eugene, Oregon. How was that? Like, you know, I, we don't, I, we're not sure, <laughs> I don't know much about Oregon. I've been there. I, I went to Portland on my honeymoon. Yeah, my sister-in-law lives in Eugene. It's a nice town and very green and verdant. You know, it rains a lot. I think it rains like almost every day, it seems like. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> You somehow made your way from there to Hollywood or what, were there stops along the way in, in terms of your acting journey? Well, it's kind of a strange story. I, uh, I wanted to get a scholarship to go to college somehow or other. I played football, but I obviously am not big enough to be any good at football in college. Uh, and then uh, a buddy and I went to a, an audition in high school. I, we were both sophomores, and we went to watch this audition. And they were auditioning for uh, – and we just went there to sort of as a joke. We sat in the back <laughs> of the, you know, the <laughs> arena, uh, the gymnasium, and sat up there and laughed at the actors. You know what I mean, how that is? <laughs> and the last thing on our minds was, you know, acting. And we were just there to make fun of the actors. But – we were up there laughing around, and the director, a guy named Mr. Markworth, he looked up at us up there, and he says, what are you guys laughing at? You know, we said, well, we're just, oh, you know, and we were about to leave. He says, why don't you come down and, and try this? And we're like, oh, yeah, right. No, come on. Come on. You think this is funny? Come try it. So we went down, and we tried it, and we got the leads. <laughs> <laughs> is that crazy? <laughs> so Inherit the Wind, and I played the um, Frederick March part. So all of a sudden, I thought, well, maybe I can get a scholarship acting, you know? And um, they had something called United Regional Theater Association at the time, started under the National Endowment for the Arts. And uh, they were giving out scholarships to actors to go to these schools. The deal was that each, each college or junior college would nominate somebody from their drama department, and then uh, they would compete with other nominees in the state, and one male and one female would be the finalists of that state. And then those finalists would go to audition in LA, Chicago, and Washington, D.C. to get scholarships at <laughs> colleges all over wow. the country. Isn't that neat? Yeah. Uh, wow. And uh, I think TCG was part of that too, Theater Commun- Communications Group. Anyway, I ended up getting nominated from the state of Oregon. I, I was going to junior college. I-, I graduated a year early, so I was going to junior college 
at the same time I was going to my junior year in high school. And the guy there, Ed Ragazzino, at uh, Lane Community College had nominated me from the drama department to audition. And I got it. And then I also, geez, this is boring already. Isn't it? Not at all. <laughs> no, 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 no. You let you, we'll, we'll be the judge of that. <laughs> okay. You tell the stories. and Okay. We, all right. I, I will trust your direction, sir. And sir and sir. <laughs> we see what you don't understand, Craig, is that this isn't, you know, again, for our listeners, right? And we're, I feel like we're the deep cuts of, of, uh, <laughs> of the podcast entertainment community where, you know, we're, we're, we're looking for a little bit more than just, it'd be easy enough to just have you on and let's say, hey, let's just talk about Body Double. But I, yeah. I, I am very curious about how did you, you know, I mean, that's a, a thing that a lot of people wonder. How do you even become an actor? And so to hear even how you got involved in this, uh, that's pretty fascinating to me yeah me too oh thank you james thanks teal you guys thank you uh so it is it is kind of an amazing story it amazes me because you know it, it was never initially my intention which is kind of interesting you know i was right. trying to get a scholarship to go become i don't know what a, a lawyer or something or try to have a profession of some kind uh, i i was kind of surprised that they were giving out scholarships for actors not that there's nothing wrong with actors i just never considered myself something that, that i'd make a living at it you know what i mean right, but right. anyway First, I go to Juilliard, which has nothing to do with this other thing, but there were some connections in New York, and I managed to wrangle a, uh, oh, it was actually David Ogden Stiers, who ended up on oh, that. Yeah. He yeah. was a guy from Eugene, Oregon, who had seen me perform at a couple local theater productions, and the one I think he saw was 1776, and I played the, the young man who sings Mama, Mama, you know, come looking <laughs> for me. And he said, oh, you know, you ought to audition for Juilliard, because he'd been in the first class there with John Houseman being the artistic oh, wow. director so anyhow so he managed to get me an audition there i failed miserably i <laughs> <laughs> it was really embarrassing it was on a really highly raked stage there at juilliard and i could hardly stand i'm thinking what is this uh, i hadn't really done any raked stage work before and uh, i was doing a scene from othello i was doing iago you know three great ones off camp <laughs> for me to take tell them you may hate me if i do not despise them all and they're looking at me like this guy's got to go. <laughs> and I did. And so then my next audition was there in Washington, D.C., down the road, you know, for this uh, URTA that I had auditioned for and gotten uh, made it to the finals for the state of Oregon. And I auditioned there, and I was sort of relaxed because I thought, well, you know, what the heck? You know, I, I'm not going to worry about it. So they had said do a monologue, and um, the director that I'd worked there with uh, at the local theater in Eugene, uh, Ed Ragazzino, who was a wonderful guy, was really a mentor to me. Uh, he said, you know, you have any favorite books? Why don't you pick like a page of a monologue out of a book, a good book? I, at that time, oh. I just read, uh, like everybody else, you know, I had I'd, I'd read uh, Catcher in the Rye. Right. And I took the, uh, the thing where uh, uh, Holden Caulfield talks about his brother, about how he died and what a great kid he was. And right, everything. right. And it was it was really powerful. It affected me, but it also affected the guys that were there for the audition. And I also played guitar and sang Sonny, of all things. Oh, Sonny, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, I got a whole bunch of offers or scholarships. I couldn't believe it. I, there was a scholarship to Cornell and a scholarship to uh, where else? Uh, well, the main one was Stevens College, which is a girls' school. And I thought, well, that, that sounds nice. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I would have been the student teacher on campus, and I would be play the male lead in each of their productions. You know what I mean? 
I think there was going to be one other guy maybe, but I'd be a student teacher on a campus. I'd be like one of few guys on, on a girl's campus. I thought, my God, this is a great idea. <laughs> then another scholarship that I, and I accepted that. And then another scholarship I got was to Penn State the summer prior to starting that school year. So I went there to do summer stock, uh, damn Yankees. I was one of the three guys who sang, you got to have heart and, uh, and Brigadoon. And I was some crazy oh, wow. old Irish sort of like, you know, uh, like a, a leprechaun kind of guy. You know, all that. So that was fun. I'm doing Brigadoon and Damn Yankees. And there's a guy there who's a, a visiting professional, David Spielberg. Apparently no direct relationship to Steven Spielberg. <laughs> but he was a great guy. And he was a kind of a three-camera live comedy show star at the time. He was doing, did a lot of three-camera live comedies. In L.A., and I apologize to say I don't remember which shows he was on, right. but he was he was really funny and really good. And he was a nice guy, you know, took me under his wing and he said, you know what, you'd be really good in a play that they're doing up in New York called Godspell. And I said, yeah. what's, God, what's Godspell? And he said, well, it's, you know, it's a, got a lot of young people in it, and uh, it's very successful. It's a musical, and you're good at music and all that. I said, well, well uh, how would I get in that? And he said, well, get a picture and a resume together and, and then call, you know, information in New York and ask for the Godspell office, I guess, you know. <laughs> so I said, yeah, okay, that sounds good. So I didn't know anything about eight by tens, you know, or glossies, right. or resume pictures or anything. But I did have a picture of myself and my girlfriend in front of my 66 Mustang. So it was a little photo. I had that. And then I had a resume of my work at a uh, rug factory in Portland, Oregon, driving a heister around, moving carpets right and carpet pads and then i also as a uh, uh, men's clothing salesman at myron frank and eugene and also picking beans and then a mm -hmm. couple of plays you know high school and the local theater so i i put that all together very proud of my resume you know mostly work <laughs> <laughs> work at the department <laughs> stores and stuff and off it went and now the reason I sent it off is when I called information, this was incredible. I mean, the odds of this are impossible. I called up. I said, I just need the address and phone number for the uh, Godspell office. And I said, oh, yeah. It was listed under the Godspell office, which is impossible. <laughs> you know, normally it would be a production name, right. you know, or something like that. But sure enough, it was the Godspell office. So I sent it to that address. And a few months, you know, a month or so went by. I finally finished the uh, – Summer stock there in Pennsylvania. It was at Penn State. A couple of people, uh, what's that guy's name? Doggone it. Well, he invited to let me sleep on his couch in New York, you know, because I said, I'm going up to New York to audition for Godspell. And they're like, oh, yeah, congratulations. I, 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 nobody had ever told me I was going to be able to audition. I just figured I was going to go audition, you know. Anyway, to make a long story short, I get to New York. I've got the address of the building that the office is in. So I'm in the lobby downstairs at about 51st between 7th and Broadway. And I'm calling on the payphone and I'm calling to the office number. And the guy who picks up the phone is laughing and the people in the background are laughing. And uh, they had just opened that uh, resume and picture I'd sent them. <laughs> and they were laughing about this guy. And I said, hi, I'm Craig Wasson. I've called to audition for the bus and truck because uh, uh, David Spielberg had mentioned that bus and truck is the best thing to I probably get a chance at. I want to audition for the bus and truck. Now, the bus and truck is a is the lowest level of tour because you're you're oh, on the okay. bus all day long, and then you 
you perform at a high school gym and then you drive all night on the bus to the next location, you know. Okay. Interesting. It, it's, it's a tough tour, you know. Yeah. Anyway, the guy says, what's your name again? Craig was, he's on the phone. <laughs> and everybody erupts in laughter. He says, where are you? I said, I'm in your lobby. He's in the lobby. <laughs> I, he says, where are you from? I said, I, I, I'm from uh, Oregon. He's from Oregon. <laughs> what is it you want again? I want audition for the uh, the bus and truck tour. He says, well, the bus and truck has already been cast, but would you like to come in uh, for the national tour? Now, the national tour is like the triple crown. You know what I mean? It's like right. the top of the line, first class, everything. I said, no, no, I, I prefer the bus and truck. <laughs> that's all I knew. You know? he, says, he doesn't want the bus. Listen, kid, uh, come in and audition uh, this week. He gave me an uh, address, he says, and um, uh, come up with three a three-minute story that's funny. Show us your physical movements and sing for us. A couple songs. I said, okay. So anyway, so all that happens. I go in, and I had been a gymnast in high school. I'm not that that was the only thing I did, but, you know, I, I did a little right. gym work, you know. So I was doing kips and backflips and stuff like that. And they liked that. And I came up with a little story about Clem Enes and Godfreyness and the, you, you know, the couple brothers and the, the moral was Clemminess is next to Godfreyness. Ridiculous, you know, okay. but I was joking around while I was doing that. I'm, I'm doing the backflip. I'm, I'm doing the cartwheels. I'm doing kip. I stopped. And the director is this beautiful woman, Nina Faso. Have you ever seen a woman like she looks like she's from an Italian painting. Her face mm. is like, alabaster her cheeks are beautiful sort of reddish and deep black 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 hair beautiful dark eyes and she she looked like the most i still think of her as maybe the most beautiful woman i ever saw and she looks at me she says hmm <laughs> she's the director right and she says <laughs> i i, I want to use you somewhere would you teach my brother Lori how to play guitar <laughs> and her her brother was going to be in the production so i said yeah sure she said okay and are you a member of the union? I said, what's a union? <laughs> she says, a union, you know, like the actor's union. I said, no, no I'm not. She said, oh, well, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll pay for your membership, uh, you know, and then your dues and all that stuff. You, so you can join and be legal. I said, oh, thank you so much. And now they created, not for me, but for, for this particular show, Godspell, every, there were five guys and five women, and they were on stage all the time, all the time through the whole show, even at intermission, they were serving wine and bread as a hmm. communion. All the audience came up and took communion, went back to their seats, and then the second act started. So they came up with a part, not an understudy, but something called an alternate, so that the actors had a pretty steady chance to have at least a performance a week off. Oh, right. And so I learned all five guys' roles. I became the one of the two male alternates, and I was playing all five guys' roles alternating when somebody needed a break, which was right. usually, you know, three or four times a week. So I, I played all the parts, eventually uh, promoted to Jesus, and it's been all downhill since then. So that's the story. <laughs> it's because you got the hair, man. 
<laughs> I had the hair and the beard. Yeah. So I know that you know you started out. You had some some television roles. You know, like little guest appearances here and there. And then you even had a uh, like a small role. I probably very small in uh, a movie that I saw as a kid, but I don't remember it at all. Was Roller Coaster? But then, yes. like in 1978. You appear in two different Vietnam films, The Boys in Company C and Go Tell the Spartans. And I'm kind of curious as to uh, how did those come about? And I don't even know. I know that Boys in the Company C was released first. Go Tell the Spartans was released, sort of released. It kind of escaped a little bit mm-hmm. into drive-ins and things at the uh, later portion of 78. But I don't know whether you shot one first or another, but I'm very curious as to kind of how that got started. Boys and Company C was my first real film role. I mean, I did, like you said, I, I did get a, a small, real small part in Roller Coaster where I played the hippie boy with the girl and I were holding a, a stuffed white buffalo on the last car of a roller coaster sitting on the bomb. So that was an exciting <laughs> role. But uh, <laughs> Boys and Company C was an audition that came up. Sheila Manning was the casting director and, and my agent at that time. Wait, Sheila Manning? I, I I used to work for her. Nothing more than that. I just I was a casting assistant for her at one no point. No kidding. What are the odds? Isn't that, yeah. She was a great gal. I really liked yeah. her. She had asked me to come in to audition for this Boys and Company C. And about a week before the audition, I, I was given the script and I read it. My brother was in the military. He wasn't in Vietnam, uh, but he had been in the Coast Guard, which is really you know not involved in uh combat but it, it moved right. me so much thinking of my brother and also i was blessed in the sense that uh i escaped the uh, the draft and the lottery that was the mm. first year the lottery ended but i i remember thinking you know well i guess i'm going to vietnam you know I, I didn't even consider as the years were leading up i thought well i guess i'm going to vietnam i hope i you know hope everything right. works out but anyway so i read it and i was really moved and so i i wrote a song uh, from reading the script. And so I figured, well, maybe I'll play that song for the director when I, you know, go to the audition. So I went to the audition. I was sitting in the waiting room and there was a waiting to go into audition. There's about four or five guys in there. And I had my guitar with me. And one of the guys said, what's the guitar for? I said, well, I read this script. It was really moving. I, I wrote a song for it. The guy says, well, let's hear it. I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> I figured maybe I warm up a little, tune my guitar. Yeah. I play it. And the guy is the writer of the movie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Rick Natkin was a great, great guy. And uh, he said, that song has to be in my movie. And, he, and so he said, come on, we're going in now. So he took me in. Is that crazy? I thought he was another actor. Well, you know? I mean, that song, that song, not only you get to play it in the movie, but it, like then the song ends the, the over the credits in the film. Like, yes, yeah. the ending, ending title credits, yeah. And I play it in the movie. And so I go in there and I play it for Sid Fury, who's the director who directed, you know, uh, Lady Sings the Blues, great director. And we go in there and uh, I play it. And Sid Fury says, once again, it's a crazy thing. Thank God for my guitar, you know, because the last one on Godspell, she wanted me to teach her brother how to play the guitar. (laughs) This guy says, you know, okay, the song, you know, grow a beard, let your hair grow. And uh, we'll see you. It was going to be several months before they started shooting. So I remember going home for Christmas to my folks saying, yeah, I got a movie I'm going to do, you know. So uh, that's how that happened. And then a year or so, or maybe six months after I got back from doing Boys and Company C, uh, this movie with Burton Lancaster, Go Tell the Spartans, came up. Another Vietnam picture, uh, which was uh, written by Wendell Mays, wonderful screenwriter. And my gosh, Burt Lancaster's like... 
Yeah. I mean, when you think of the time, your age, you're like, whoa, whoa this is like one of the biggest stars that I remember growing up. Like, Exactly. <laughs> Hello, kid. How are you? It's <laughs> a good impression. I'm all right, sir. How are you? Well, if I were any better, I'd think it was a setup. But so anyways, <laughs> he was great. Oh, he was great. My gosh, Burt Lancaster. So great. The, the first day I got to work with him, the rest of us had already been shooting for a couple of weeks. And then he came the first time he showed up on set. We had a scene together, he and I. And it was the sort of the scene also where we meet in the movie, where we're out there in a hutch. And he comes and says, uh, what the hell are you doing here anyway? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> and he's so great. And I'm so excited. And so the first time we run through it, you know, afterwards, he sort of looks at me and he says, come here, I want to talk to you alone. So we go off to the side a little ways away from everybody. He says, listen, you know, you know your lines? I said, yeah. He says, you know, Wendell Mays, he's a wonderful writer. I said, yeah. He <laughs> says, Teddy. Teddy Post over there. He's done a million gun smokes. He knows how to direct. He can set up the camera. I said, okay, great. He says, and you know me, right? I said, yeah. He says, well, then, son, you don't have to do a goddamn thing. <laughs> was that great? And I relaxed, and we just had the greatest time together. He was just such... He was like a father to me on that picture, I'll tell you. Wow. What's kind of cool getting a chance to go back is that these two films, right? Boys of Company C, Go Tell the Spartans. I was a little too young to be seeing those when they came out on release. Right. And then these were not films that, uh, you know, in my day, right? The early 80s was cable and VCRs. And uh, they didn't really show these movies very often. It was hard to find. But they always stayed in my brain. And so, uh, you know, for this show, getting a chance to go back and, and watch these, I think it's interesting is uh, kind of the sort of history that you get with the Vietnam War movies were, oh, there was these couple of films at the start, uh, Go Tell the Spartans, Boys and Company C. Um, and that's kind of their epitaph. But now you get to watch them 40 plus years later. And yeah. I look at these films, having seen everything else, right, you know, that's come afterwards. And I have yeah. a very different perspective on the power of these two movies, especially yeah. Go Tell the Spartans, yes. which I look past the fact that super low budget, um, you know, it looks like it was shot in the back the back doors of uh, California somewhere. Um, it was. And, and, you know, it has sort of that, a little bit of a stodgy, hey, we're making a war movie the way they used to make war movies. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, it always takes like one film that changes it. So like you get Apocalypse Now a year later and suddenly you can't make, you can't make movies that look like Go Tell the Spartans anymore. It has to be different. But exactly. the message, right? What it conveys yeah. in the story about our involvement in Vietnam in the early stages yeah. and the dialogue of just just the, someone like the Burt Lancaster character's major uh, Barker, just realizing that he, he senses what a cluster this whole thing is mm -hmm. and how Absolutely. mismanaged it is. And we don't have very many. I can't think of any other Vietnam movie, to my knowledge, that really gets into our relationship with working with the South Vietnamese Army and the complexities there and, and what yeah. a disaster that was. And that, that's what I was really kind of shocked about this movie, Go Tell the Spartans. And then I was just like, wow, you know, this is a story that I didn't really get to see ever before. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, in both Go Tell the Spartans and Poison Company C, I find unlike any of the other subsequent films about Vietnam, even to this day, in my personal opinion, they're the only two pictures that are arguing on behalf of the soldiers. 
You know, it's like, look at what yeah. these guys are involved in. You know, look at what they've been thrown into. What is this? You know, what is going on here? And, and actually pointing the finger at the system, whereas the other movies, I feel, sort of point at the soldiers and say, see how bad these guys were. But they weren't right. bad guys. They were just kids out of high school going where they were told they had to go. What was fascinating, and it's probably, I don't want to speak for you, Teal, but, you know, having the right, full metal jacket is fully ingrained in, yes. in, in our brains. And you know what? Because of that intense visual style it is as much of an anti-war film it wants to be. Um, for what I've heard, the reputation is that those that, you know, have re- really have gone into the military sense, they love that movie. Like, it's a rah-rah call for them. It, it is a rah-rah call. It is not, they do not see it as an anti-war film. And yeah. yet, yeah. when you watch The Boys and Company see very similar movie. I mean, especially yeah. the first half, the training. I mean, again, the from the hair shavings uh, down to the way that they train these soldiers, but what was fascinating about the second half, even though I feel like it's a little, it's a little bit, it tries to kind of gobble up more than it can chew, is that it was saying, look at all that training, and now we yeah. put you out there, and the second they get there, yeah. it's just a disaster, <laughs> and <laughs> it's, sure. it's like, it, and then the movie, I felt like it's almost like a little bit like Catch-22 in a way, um, especially yeah. with the absurdity of like, hey, if we can win this soccer match, we yeah. can go on tour and we don't have to fight. So, Amen. Yeah. And, and then all of the rebellion, then they find out, well, you got to lose the game. <laughs> like, yeah. And they thought all we had to do was win, but now we have to lose. And that's, it goes against everything that kind of been trained. Yeah. The American right. spirit. And Arlie Ermey, you know, was discovered in Boys and Company C. He yeah. really was a real a drill instructor. And he came to be uh, an, a technical military advisor for us on Boys and Company C. And he was so good that uh, Sid, uh, Sidney Fury fired the other guy who'd been hired to play the drill instructor and, and hired Ermie. Interesting. And Ermie was a great guy. And apparently Kubrick had seen Boys and Company C and built the first half of Full Metal Jacket around Lee Ermie and what he had done in Boys and Company C in the first half of that picture. There's a different actor, and I can't remember which guy in Full Metal Jacket had that role. He had Lee Ermie's role in Full Metal Jacket, but then as Kubrick was looking at the tapes that he had Lee Ermey do because he was supposed to just sort of help them as a consultant, he realized yeah. this is the guy and he had to tell the other guy, sorry, but I'm going to still put you in the movie, but we, we got to have him. It's the same. It's a, it's a parallel story, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and the guy's great. When, when he was over there, he, uh, I, I became friends with him too. And I actually introduced him to my agent, Scott Harris at, uh, uh, in, in Los Angeles. And he signed him up, and you know he had quite a good career. And unfortunately, yeah. he passed away. But he was a he was a really great guy, quite the character too. Very, very interesting and a wonderful guy, Lee Army. So now you've got these two movies, right? I mean, here is a young you, 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 you. Like I said, you you showed up at a uh, at a high school. Uh, play and were to heckle <laughs> and here you are several years later you're, you're in two movies in the same year and that must have been kind of uh, exciting time for you right in 78 you're in boys and company see to start the year and then yeah. go tell the spartans though uh you know it's funny I, I, as a kid I, I used to comb through the movie pages in the newspaper and i'd yeah. like whether i could see the movies or not it was the posters and those things that got me excited about what's this and i, and I was like i don't really rem- i remember boys and company sees poster and remember that being out in theaters but then go tell the spartans i I was like did that ever get released and when i go back to the newspapers i'm always surprised to see well look it did play in boston area but 
it was on second run theaters and drive-ins for one week and right. watching the movie is so much better than that that i was like yeah. i don't understand what happened here you know it's interesting because that was the picture he made before atlantic city so atlantic city yeah. was like a huge hit you know and revived right. his his magnificent career but he basically produced this with his own money and we had very little uh, very little time to shoot it i think we shot it in like three weeks oh wow and it was almost all night shoot and it was across the freeway from magic mountain just as you <laughs> guessed right. yeah in valencia <laughs> <laughs> on the santa little santa clara river which is really just a little creek and uh, i remember i think avco which was the distributor I think there was some kind of a lawsuit or something. Something happened soon after the release. Either went bankrupt or there was a lawsuit or okay. something, unfortunately, that sort of wrecked the, the distribution and the release. You know what I mean? Uh, a little story about how tight we were with the budget and how rushed we were. The joke was that if Bert would say, now listen, if you don't fall down in front of the camera while you're doing your take, we're going to print it. <laughs> is that great how is it as an actor to to have you know okay well maybe i'm getting one take here well you know in a way it's kind of freeing you know because you can get trapped and of course i did a lot of theater not that i was some great theater actor but i mean i'd done a lot of stuff in new york and a lot of theater in high school and local so theater was kind of my first thing in theater you don't get a second take you right. know so you you prepare and you do it and hopefully it's going to be as good as you can do the first time. We get used to just doing it once. But they were long hours, and we would we would be up all night until the sun started to come up, until there wasn't enough dark left, left to believe right. it was still night. And we had one scene, supposed to be from Lancaster and my point of view, of a bush moving, and they just had a, a little fishing line tied to the bush, and somebody was pulling it back and forth to make it look like somebody was behind the bush. And uh, Ted... Of course, it was because he probably couldn't set up for another shot, but everybody wanted to go home, you know, and Ted Post, the director, kept shooting and shooting and shooting until there was like 15 takes, you know. It was like, what? 15 takes on a bush? <laughs> and uh, and on the way back after we finally cut, Ted Post went, fantastic, magnificent, beautiful, print it. And they printed it, you know. And on our way back, Bert and I are walking together, and he says, did you hear what Teddy said there? Fantastic, magnificent, beautiful, print it. I said, yeah. He says, tell you a little story. One day you and I will be sitting at the Pantages Theater <laughs> watching Go Tell It to the Spartans or whatever we end up calling it. And I'll turn to you at that moment when the bush moves there and I'll turn and I'll say, fantastic, magnificent, beautiful, print it. <laughs> oh my oh. isn't that great the guy was just everything every time he talked it was something fantastic like that you know it blew my mind i wish i could remember it all but with a sense of humor too my oh God. he had a great sense of humor there's a scene where my character gets shot and i'm on the ground and and he's walking behind me and he comes past me and he has to pick me up well i'm thinking wow how are we going to work this out he says don't worry about it just Roll the camera. We're going to shoot it. So he's back there, and I'm lying on the ground. I'm thinking, well, here we go. And he's walking up. Without breaking stride, he picks me up with his right arm like a sack of potatoes and just keeps walking. <laughs> and the guy was in his 70s at the time. He was in great shape. Wow. And after that, I said, geez, Bert, that's incredible. He says, I was a circus entertainer. You don't get to be a circus entertainer by being out of shape. <laughs> 
Oh man, he's just a gold mine of these incredible lines. He really is, and it blows my mind. I mean, imagine picking somebody up with just your right arm without breaking yeah. stride in your seventies and just walking along like it's nothing. You know, and another thing that's great about watching some of these films when you go back, this is one of my favorite things when I revisit a movie or visit it for the first time, is it's fun to see who pops up that you're like, oh my goodness, I know that that actor. Right, and right. there's a few in this movie. Uh, Mark Singer, uh, he plays yeah. sort of Burt Lancaster's right-hand man. And he, he did a lot of things in the 80s that I enjoyed. I always remember the one where, if you could see where I, what I hear, where he's, where he's a blind man and it tells his oh, story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But then there's this other actor. He plays Sergeant um, Oldenowski as a guy who kind of goes insane while he's there in Vietnam. And he's played by this actor, Jonathan Goldsmith. And I'm looking at him and I, it's like, I know this guy, <laughs> but he's just different. There's something about him. I'm not going to go on the IMDb and look him up. I'm like, who is this guy? And I see Jonathan Goldsmith and that doesn't pop up. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait, this face. And it turns out that he, years later, became the most interesting man in the world with the Dos Equis commercials. You know, you mentioned that to me when we first talked earlier, and I still can't, I can't believe it. I know. Isn't that funny? You could work with somebody. didn't realize he's the most interesting man in the world. He was right there. He probably was the most interesting man in the world, but I was talking to Bert Lancaster. I know. I he know? was like the most famous man on the set. Uh, uh, and it's like so weird is that I live in Vermont, and then if the, the story is that Jonathan Goldsmith, he now lives about 40 minutes away in Vermont. So I think it's funny how all of these little connections, you know, Teal worked with a casting director. and Well, not only that, I worked on the campaign of casting Jonathan goldsmith for that dos equis spot you did yes i was, I was <laughs> now when he came in what how did he did you meet him personally or did you yeah i met him personally and did when he came in what kind of a like what did he do to make you feel like oh, this guy is pretty interesting and you know we probably saw a hundred guys for that part yeah he just had a charm to him i i, I agree with you i mean i thought that was a brilliant casting move i mean yeah. i thought he was that that guy was a perfect face for that product didn't you think uh, absolutely perfect yeah i mean he had the look and there was just you know how it is some it, it just an actor has a little spark for a role and somehow it connects and it clicks it's it, it's it's that. subjective in so many ways but you know when it's there that's for sure well jonathan hello if you're out there yeah Nice work. Uh, I know you did a film in 1979 uh, called The Outsider, and it was about the Troubles, uh, which was uh, in what was happening in Ireland at the time. And yep. that I have not seen. And I do want to get to some other things. Um, so I, I'm not passing on it on purpose. But I mean, no hey. worries. No worries. But I do want to touch bases that because I don't know. I, I, I don't know when this was even shot or how this came about, but I did watch, you You had sent me a, a clip on YouTube, or it wasn't a clip, it was actually a short film, and it's interesting is that uh, while it would be great if a full, like, restored version of this existed somewhere and was available, it would be l wonderful to see, but I still was able to watch it, was a short AFI film uh, directed by Robert Mandel, who, for those who don't know, he directed the movie that is a, kind of a staple for me in the mid-80s, is FX. Oh, and yeah. It was called Nights at O'Shears. O'Rears, with an R. I think it's O'Rears. Oh, see, I've already got it. Let me say this again. Don't worry. It's called Nights, Nights at O'Rears, uh, which is like a weird, it's like a weird 45 minutes out of odd sort of slice of life in a dusty Texas town focused around a like sort of a drive through restaurant and uh, kind of about male toxicity, I think. Um, before before that was a thing. Right. And you got to play yeah. the, you got to play the, the, the head toxic male. The, That's the, me. He, he was sort of like the stud 
mud bull guy riding around with his uh, cowboy hat and his cigarillo and, uh, you know, your uh, Mustang and causing all sorts of shenanigans over at the uh, drive thru. Right. Uh, my character was trouble. Yeah, definitely. The trouble guy. And, you know, that was. That was kind of uh, something that was familiar to me from my time in Idaho and, and Oregon. You know, guys on the football team, and then, then they graduate high school, and they now what do you do? You know, you, you can't do anything. You could run with a football, <laughs> or you could do something. But you now you're driving around in a muscle car. Well, you were like the original Wooderson, the original dazed and confused guy that Matthew McConaughey played. Basically, you were that uh, one-time <laughs> that football star guy. And you know what's crazy is a friend of mine watched it recently and said, "Do you realize that you say all right, all right, all right?" Yeah, in it's there? amazing. No, you got that's the mo- that's the most fascinating part of watching a film like this is that you were that character. Yeah. I was. I was. It's crazy because we looked at that dazed and confused. Uh, my friend Marianne and I the other day, because she really likes Matthew McConaughey, and so do I. You know, and and uh, we're watching it. We think, oh, this is kind of you know, it's not so great. But then when Matthew McConaughey shows up, you know, yeah. then you see he's fantastic. But when he goes, all right, all right, all right, my friend had just watched Nights Out of Rears, and she went. <laughs> Wait a minute. When did you do that? Uh, that thing where you played Max Corley and that whole thing, you know, and I said, I, I don't remember what you 1980. And so it was quite a ways before Days and Confused. But yeah. I would say that Matt uh, improved on the original. How did that come about? Like, how do you get because, you know, now you've been in a couple of features and then you choose to go and do a short AFI film, which, is, of course, AFI is very prestigious. So I, I'm just curious as to uh, how does that Were you just you're like, hey, if you're offered a part, you're going to be if you like the script, you're going to do it. Just to backtrack a little bit, I, I worked with George C. Scott in New York on a couple of plays, including Death of a Salesman, where he played uh, Willie Loman, and I wrote the incidental music and uh, played the second waiter. <laughs> but he, one of the pieces of advice he gave me says, listen, Watson, I don't believe in uh, fatherly advice or any of that shit, but I'll tell you, I'll give you, give you some advice. You sound just like him. Jeez. I know. <laughs> these amazing. impressions are amazing. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Never turn down work. <laughs> I mean it. Don't ever turn down work. You're not too good for anything. Okay. Okay. So I took his advice and uh, Nights Out of Rears, a guy named Andy Karsh produced it. And there was this wonderful actor. Oh, I feel bad that I've forgotten his name. Doggone it. Anyway, he was a friend of Andy Karsh and also a friend of uh, Robert Mandel. And they said, hey, we're doing this thing. You know, I think you'd be good for the main part. Read it. It's not going to take long. You know, we're going to shoot it in like 10 days or something up uh, up there over the grapevine down in the valley. And I said, yeah, I, I'd have to be fun because I, I like playing that character, even though I got sidelined eventually to go off and play kind of like the guy who was always sad and brokenhearted all the time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're the brokenhearted everyman. <laughs> I, I was. I, I loved the everyman thing, but I, I, the, all of it was fine. But uh, I like kind of playing this uh, guy who was overconfident, and that was sort of my high school thing. You know, I, I, that's why right. I went up, yeah, I'm going to go audition for Godspell. What the hell? Why not? <laughs> you know, they'll probably hire me, you know, which is insane that they did. That was a miracle. But anyway... Yeah, so I did it, and it was fun. It was really fun. Now, I mean, I'm going to skip a couple of movies. Uh, you know, okay. I'm not going to full chronology. I, I didn't watch, though I think it's available on Prime, uh, Amazon Prime. I think I could watch Schizoid, but uh, I don't know. I if wouldn't I was, recommend I, it. I wasn't in a Klaus Kinski <laughs> mood, so I, I passed on that. Oh, wait, I've seen that. My, my apologies. <laughs> well, you know, you got to do it right. You, 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 if you if you if you work long enough, you're going to do everything, right? You're going to do all yeah. sorts of stuff. It's funny, too, because that's where I met my wife. 
because she was the casting director on that. Wow. And she, Ann Bell, and she, she had wanted to meet me apparently. And so she called me in for an audition and that was, boy, anyway, let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) You have a bit role. um, I think it's kind of an important role to start off the film, but it's not a big role in uh, 1980s Carney. Um, which right. uh, I I yeah. did why actually you know even though you were you left in after like fifteen minutes yeah. I, I I found the film very fascinating I think this is another movie where it comes out in nineteen eighty and it's whatever but now you look at it forty years later and I found this kind of a little bit of a hidden gem because it just immerses you in a very little known world uh, yep. that of these uh, carnies and i was just kind of taken in uh, by this experience and so i really liked that movie and, and of course you know you just have a small role but you know, hey you were fine in it <laughs> and that was that similar kind of part you know i was a brash you know yeah. a high right. school guy with my uh, high school letterman's jacket and i'm throwing balls at gary Busey there he's the guy over the pot of water you know that you hit the thing and he goes in he's dressed up like a clown i loved working with gary you know i loved working with jody foster and i loved working with robbie robertson they had rented a big house there in savannah that was fantastic gary plays guitar of course obviously robertson plays bass and i play guitar and we used to play together there in that mansion that was okay so now this is going to stop here for a second this is why i'm glad we didn't skip over carney because Take drink that in, people. Do you know how amazing <laughs> that's an amazing thing? Yeah. I mean, that, like you're you're like jamming with Robbie Robertson. I know that's freaking insane. Okay, like Gary Busey. People don't. I mean, some people may not realize, but you know, he he showed up. He got in Hollywood. He was in a band. Yeah, he and was that's how he got his start. And he's a great musician. He's fantastic. Wow, that's that's pretty crazy. <laughs> Well, because like, you know what I don't, I mean, you're only in it for 15 minutes. So like, uh, you know, one thinks like, oh, you show up for a couple of days and you're gone, but you're sounding like you got a chance to hang out and Yeah, jam because and- there were a couple of, a couple of days we shot and, uh, and we were there for a little while before time. They flew me in and they were shooting other stuff. And then, you know, and we spent some time in Savannah, went to dinner with Jody a few times and her mother and uh, the rest of the cast. And boy, what a brilliant girl. I remember, I mean, we hung out a, a bit, you know. And uh, she was just a kid, but she was a genius. She just, she, she was so, and, and so classy. So I, I've always right. really, really admired her. She's a brilliant person. Well, what's fascinating, and this is about sort of like the times, there's no way, no way in hell a 16-year-old actress <laughs> is going to be in a movie like Carney now. It's just not going to happen. They would cast somebody who was at least 25. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it was great. It was, it was really fun really fun this is where i think is very fascinating because this is where the craig wasson i know comes into play where i first become aware of you as an 11 year old boy movie lover wow within a month i mean i'm talking a month at the very end of 1981 you star in two big movies and one that came out first is ghost story and then the second one and that was directed by a British uh, filmmaker, John Irvin. And mm-hmm. then the second film, which is really, the, I think, the chance for you to become a breakout star is Four Friends, which is directed by Oscar-nominated director Arthur Penn from Bonnie and Clyde and, you know, uh, Alice's Restaurant and so many others. And it's written by Oscar winner Steve Tessich, who had just won the Oscar a couple of years before for Breaking Away. And so this is pretty amazing to have two movies that are going to be in theaters that you have like a huge role in both. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I wish they'd both been big hits. I know. This is, <laughs> right. well, this is like, I mean, I guess that's a real thing, right? You can get, you, you, but it, like the movies have to hit, right? And so, yeah. How, yeah. which one comes first? How do you get these movies? I auditioned for Four Friends first. I was in New York with my wife at the time, the casting director, Ann Bell. And I forget why I was in New York, but uh, somebody called and my agent in, in New York was uh, Jerry Hogan and my agent and, and they were partners with Margaret Henderson in L.A. And I think that Jerry I said, oh, you're in town. OK, they're interviewing for a film called Four Friends. And I just went over to Gene Lasko's office, who was actually a, a, a wonderful director and, and uh, casting director himself in New York, but he was really a, an actor's kind of guy, you know, and, and all these guys were actor studio people. And I went in there and I, I don't know, you know, sometimes it's sort of like the most interesting man in the world, you know, sometimes you just have a feel for something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just clicks. Yeah. And, and I like what you said earlier, James, about the everyman. I mean, at this point, I really wanted to be the everyman, you know, I wanted to be the guy that people could, uh, you know, just a guy, you know, just a guy right. who's, so anyway, I read it and it, came, it was very easy for me for some reason. And then uh, later I met Arthur and we did it again. It was just a little side, you know, I didn't have the script. It was just a scene. Can't even remember what the scene was, but it just sort of rolled out easily and honestly. And he said, okay, you're going to do it. Now, the neat thing was it's really an autobiographical story in a, in a, in a, poetic way of Steve Tesich's life because he had come oh. from Yugoslavia and escaped the yeah. USSR and uh, he'd come over here, you know, as a young man and his family was, you know, immigrants and uh, mm -hmm. hardworking and so forth. But what's neat is Steve said, this is also a poetic story, not just of me, the immigrant from Yugoslavia, but he says for the decade of the 60s, yeah. it's a story of every single American immigrating from 1960 to 1970. Yeah, and I think that really comes across in the movie. I mean, it, it, the decade is kind of a backdrop, but it's not just a backdrop. The characters interact with the history in a really meaningful way. I'm just thinking of that scene where you're driving to the wedding in New York and there's yeah. the bus of people going to Alabama to protest. Yes. Maybe another episode you come back, we'll break this whole movie down because I'd love to, because I got to tell you, I was very fascinated as a child about this four friends. I think I saw the trailer and it would show up on TV and I don't know, there was just something about it. I, I guess because my parents came from the sixties that anything right. that had to do with the sixties, I was immediately fascinated with. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I didn't get to see every radar movie that came down the pike then <laughs> and for whatever reason, they weren't taking me to see this. So I, I didn't get to see it and it wasn't a hit and it didn't really oh. show up a lot of on cable and things so it was one of those kind of i kept on my bucket list of wanting to see over the years and got to watch this so now again it's another movie i'm watching 40 years later i sit down with my wife and you know she knew that we were going to be, be talking with you and stuff and so she was like sitting there on the side was she going to watch or not yeah. we were sucked in this movie I, i'll be honest it really blew me away oh, good because it gave me a different look at the 60s that i had seen in most of the films that i watch yes and your character wasn't like, oh, I'm going to Vietnam. Like, that's that would be right. the, today's movie. Mm -hmm. Instead, what Teal just pointed out, there's these decisions where you, you, you're not sure. You're like as aimless as the 60s are. You're not sure yeah. what you want, how you're going to get it, what you're going to do. And the decisions that are driving you aren't always the decisions that are driving everybody else. Exactly. And, you know, for instance, the scene 
uh, is it okay to give away? Uh, I think at this point, I if you have, so. you know, I mean, yeah. we're, we're 40 years away from spoilers uh, because I want to, because there's some things that seeing that at the wedding is one of the most, it was a, such a jaw dropping for me and my wife, because yeah. I was not expecting it. And yet it all made sense to me. And then it really kicked off tragic of series of events after yeah. that. Yes. It was shot and directed in such a powerful way. Absolutely. And uh, Guillaume Cloquet was the uh, uh, cinematographer, a French cinematographer, brilliant guy. But, the, you know, the wedding scene is the one I was going to comment on. And, and it's the only one I'm going to comment on. There are very many others. And they're all poetic metaphors. Yes. The, the wedding scene is the assassination of Kennedy. Oh, You didn't yeah. see it coming. It's just yeah. a total shock. It can't happen. Right. It can't happen. It's so impossible. Especially if it's the father doing it. It kicks off a series of events of the whole destruction of that family. Right. Yes. I right. mean, he, yeah. you know, he kills his daughter. He kills himself. His right. his wife, his his son who was dying. That scene when you're when you go back to the house and the mother is there and she's like, I'm no longer a mother and a wife. It, right. It's what a great scene. Yeah. Lois Smith. Yeah. Lois Smith. Yeah, I know. Fantastic. I was so surprised to see Lois Smith there too. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, like I said, this is why I've labeled this. I always look, Teal and I both look for movies that we can kind of champion as hidden gems. Yeah. And to me, if we weren't, even if we weren't like, uh, you know, having an interview with you and we just, I stumbled upon this film, I'd be talking about it and saying, Teal, this is the, the hidden gem I've been looking for. We could easily spend an hour of the show, just the two of us talking about this movie. I, I, I just, I loved this movie. It's a real hidden gem. I hope you guys will, because, you know, it's not available on streaming that I know of. I guess you guys found a way to get it. But. Uh, there's always a way, you know, but uh, well, I, <laughs> I think love you that. might be able to rent and there's DVDs. You can get it. But like, uh, like this is a revisit type movie. You know? Yeah, I think this needs like uh, to be on Criterion. It needs uh, I agree. to be renewed. I mean, it's just it, it, and the the characters are really I became really attached to all the characters. And yeah. one thing I kept noticing is that. You are kind of this everyman character, but there's something else going on inside you. It, I, I feel like in almost every scene, you've got two or th three things going on in your face at the same time. And it, yeah. it, it, it really struck me right at the beginning where she reads the poem or recites oh, the poem. Yes. And yes. it's that face, the shot of your face as she's <laughs> reading it. Aww. And the layers of emotional complexity of sort of like love, self-loathing, insecurity, all these things are on your face. And it's it just sucked me right into the movie. And bless you, Teal. Bless you, brother. And, you know, Arthur Penn is such a great director for actors. I mean, he's a real yeah. actor studio. He, he is a master. And he had the capacity, the ability, the talent. To kind of emotionally manipulate everybody in the cast, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean that right, in an right. artistic genius sense. He could he could move you into a situation prior to shooting, so that all that was there. And I remember one of the things he told me too. He says, "Play the opposite of what's happening." You know, because in real life, that's what people do. Right. You know, play the opposite. Don't play the end of the scene. Play the opposite of the end of the scene. You don't want it to go there. You're resisting the thing that's going to happen. Right. And you're sure it's not going to happen. You're not going to let it happen. And that creates conflict, and conflict creates thought, and thought creates interest. 
that's exactly what this performance is. I've, yeah, I mean, you really anchor this whole movie. Even though in some countries they actually changed the name to it's called George's <laughs> friend, George or George's friends. And <laughs> I read a couple of reviews back in the kind of dismissive reviews back in 1981, and I, I, I think that there's some critics may have had some struggles with the relationship that Jodie Phelan's character Georgia has with all of you. Right. But looking back on it, the way I looked at it, I thought it was very fascinating. I think her character yeah. was a representation of the 60s and that free mm -hmm. spirit. Uh, very much so. Sexual awakening. Uh, she has power over these three men, but the person that she really loves is your character. But the two of you, it's that it's, they're very star crossed. There's almost like Dawson's yes. Creek for the sixties. <laughs> Dawson just can't uh, get Joey. And, but uh, yeah. it, you know, it's like, but it made sense to me. And even the weird kind of relationships that she ended up having with all of the other men, including your character, Danilo's roommate in college, yeah. it all, it all worked for me. And then at the end, but I have to say that I, I kind of thought of it as sort of like the end of the graduate, they go off together, but I'm not sure that they're going to end up together long term because I think she's just too much of a free spirit. <laughs> I know what you mean. And I, I, I bet you're right. But I like that moment at the end when she says, why does everything take so long? I, yes. I really, I know this sounds very corny, but like I said, when I watch this film, I'm like, I cannot believe that this movie isn't talked about today more. God bless you. And just on the script level quickly, the, the movie feels like an epic in the yeah. amount of things that the characters go through over the course of this. I mean, you have like multiple physical incarnations with different facial hair, mm -hmm. with the, you know, with the eye covered, with, uh, you go through, <laughs> you go through a lot of, you know, and then you're working in the steel factory. Like it's, it, there's a lot that you go through and the narrative is so tightly constructed that it really feels like there's just a lot of life and years being happening here. Uh, the right. way it moves from scene to scene is really, I think, wonderful. And, and yeah, and you sort of have to anchor it through because there's big time jumps at time it's like oh suddenly there you are and you have a beard and we're like okay we, we're a few months and you're driving a taxi like wow how did that happen we have to fill in these little gaps which is really engaging so anyhow yeah it's this movie needs uh needs some attention thank you guys i would love to see that because it it, it breaks my heart really when I think of Arthur Penn and, and the, the work that he did on this, you know, the movie he did before this was Missouri Breaks, and he said it was oh, a yes. nightmare for him. Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> because Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson is great, but he said, one of the reasons he told me, it's funny, he says, listen, the only reason I'm doing this movie with no stars is because I don't ever want to work with another star like Marlon Brando. I love Marlon Brando. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, right, right, he, right. Said, he broke a lot of directors. He said he made his life miserable. So in a way, that experience with Marlon Brando gave me a chance to be in this movie, if you know what I mean. Right, you know, like, right. Get this guy that nobody knows about. And I agree with you. The film deserves to be seen. And I, I know I'm in it, so I'm prejudice but i mean i agree with you i think it's one of arthur's great works yeah and that wraps it up for part one of our discussion with the great craig wasson so many thanks to be had for craig giving us uh, so much of his time and that's the reason why we're going to have two parts because in part two we are going to hear lots of cool things from stories from nightmare on elm street three dream warriors to body double 
and some great, great stories from Ghost Story, uh, among others. Uh, so there, you don't want to miss that. Uh, it'll be another hour, basically, of some great, great stories from Craig Wasson. Uh, this is James Kent from Stuff We've Seen, and you can find us on StuffWe'veSeen.com. Uh, we have all our episodes up there, uh, but you can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find us when you're listening to podcasts. So I hope you really enjoyed that. Uh, certainly, you can send us some feedback at feedback at stuffweseen.com. Again, this is James Kent. Uh, stay tuned for part two. You're really going to love it. Bye. Bye.